the first part of the manatee I saw was a big white scar. And as I got closer, I could see how that was affecting the manatee itself. And that's still imprinted on, in my mind today. I can see that as the first part of a manatee underwater. And it just really endeared me, made me, it just strengthened all the thoughts and feelings I had already that we need to do more about protecting them, these defenseless animals from these, this kind of cruelty, even though the cruelty is not intended. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about animals and the big questions they raise about humanity. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. Florida's waterways are home to beloved and iconic gentle giants, manatees. These half-ton lumbering mammals with their wrinkled, whiskered skin and paddle-shaped tails are believed to have evolved from the same grass-eating land ancestor as elephants over 50 million years ago. Florida manatees are famously playful, sensitive, and inquisitive. They spend much of their lives grazing cow-like on meadows of seagrass, congregating in warm water refuges, expressing emotion through complex chirps, whistles, and squeaks, nursing and caring for their young, nuzzling each other with their noses, hugging with their flippers, and maneuvering slowly at around three to five miles per hour through the state's rivers, estuaries, and shallow coastal waters. These remarkably peaceful herbivores have no natural predators and express no aggression towards other creatures. And despite being so gentle and defenseless, they can live more than 60 years in the wild. But today, few do. The iconic Florida manatee is facing a multitude of intersecting human-caused crises. Nearly all of the estimated remaining 7,500 Florida manatees have been scarred by boat strikes, while more than half are estimated to have the toxic pesticide glyphosate coursing through their veins. Years of worsening water quality from Florida's unfettered agricultural pollution and real estate development have resulted in increased toxic algae blooms that block sunlight from reaching the seagrass meadows upon which the manatees depend. Fishing gear entanglement, habitat loss, and climate change are also driving major manatee losses. In 2021, Florida's manatees died en masse with a record 1,100 manatees more than 12% of the state's total manatee population perishing. Most died of starvation. It's hard to imagine a more lovable or compelling creature than a manatee, but enthusiasm is not enough to save them. For manatees to have a chance, that love needs to be translated into enforced protections for both these animals and their habitats. Our guest, Patrick Rose, has devoted the past 45 years to propelling Florida manatees to public prominence, and to advocating on their behalf with extraordinary dedication, creativity, and effectiveness. Rose is the executive director of the Save the Manatee Club. An aquatic biologist, he is one of the world's leading experts on the Florida manatee. He was the first biologist hired by the state of Florida to do work related to protecting manatees and has advocated on their behalf before the Florida legislature, governor, and cabinet, provided policy guidance and direction for statewide recovery efforts, and served as a member of every federal manatee recovery team. As one of his colleagues once put it, Rose is the MVP of manatee protection. Over the past couple of years, as manatees have made headlines for the many crises they face, he has served as their spokesperson and much needed champion. Patrick Rose, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Great to be here. You moved to Florida in 1976 to start to work on protecting the manatees and are an aquatic biologist by training, but you grew up in landlocked Kansas City. To start, will you take us through how you came to focus on manatees and your first encounters with them? 
Yeah, my first encounters were through reading, uh, actually, Weekly Reader. And it's something, and also growing up just loving the water and constantly getting into trouble because I was running off to play in the creeks and streams and, <laughs> and lakes and so forth. So when I read about the manatee, even though I was in the Midwest, it, it really fascinated me and, and imagined, you know, there were cows around Missouri and Kansas, but a cow that was underwater <clears throat> and, you know, ate vegetation. That was really cool since I really loved, loved water. By the time that I was in my teenage years, I was already learning how to scuba dive and skin dive and so forth and anxious to get to places like Florida. I had an older brother. I'm the 10th of 11 children. I had an older brother already lived in Florida. So made a few trips back and forth. And the first, uh, really, the animal I sought out was the manatee and had already built underwater camera housings and, and even a movie camera housing in order to try to get photos and video and, and actually not video, but but film of them. What about manatees attracted you in particular? Well, the fact that they were large and, and docile, and that was probably the start. But when I actually saw my first manatee underwater, and I had read about the problems with with boats and, and other issues, but literally I was in very unclear water. And so the first part of a manatee I saw was a big white scar. And as I got closer, I could see how that was affecting the manatee itself. And that's still imprinted on, in my mind today. I can see that as the first part of a manatee underwater. And it just really endeared me, made me, it just strengthened all the thoughts and feelings I had already that we need to do more about protecting them, these defenseless animals from these, this kind of cruelty, even though the cruelty is not intended. When you moved to Florida in the mid-1970s, manatees were not at the forefront of the public consciousness the way that they are today. A lot of people, when they heard about a manatee, thought they were some sort of insect. That people did not understand sort of what a manatee was and love them the way that they love them today. How did you go about educating the public about manatees? Well, it Again, there was some work being done by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and um, really nothing much with the state of Florida at that point in time. I volunteered full time for the Florida Audubon Society. My interest in caring about manatees was something that drew me there. In fact, I mentioned that older brother again. He was a board member there. So they were glad to have me for free, <laughs> full time. <laughs> and they said, sure, you can work on manatees. You just need to go out and find your the money and the funding to do it. And so I, I took that as a challenge. And so part of that was building that public awareness and letting people know that these defenseless large marine mammals were being accidentally hit, killed by boats. Their uh, habitat was already being developed. There's quite a lot of dredging and filling going on. There was pumping from the aquifer that affects the natural springs. So there was no shortage of reasons and need to protect them. But other than the Marine Mammal Protection Act that was passed in 1972 and the Endangered Species Act in 1973, there were laws in Florida, but those laws really mostly were there to protect them from being killed directly, hunted, and, and so forth. And maybe this is time to point out why manatees were first in trouble. They really were in trouble primarily because they were hunted to very low numbers and they were eaten in those areas that occurred. And in many places, they were extirpated entirely through some of the island chains and so forth. And their numbers were reduced pretty dramatically 
in Florida as well. I also can tie back to, to Yale. Uh, one of the things that was happening during that early time, there was a, a professor at, at Yale that wanted to do an opinion survey, and they included a question on the manatees. And that's where more people in that survey thought a manatee was an insect than it was a marine mammal. More people would have known if they knew about manatees, they knew them as sea cows. And so it was it was kind of the point at which we had to look at, here's the basis and it's pretty poor knowledge. We need to build the affinity and the understanding. I was also a skin diver, scuba diver, and a, and a scuba instructor. So I would also look for the opportunity to you know encourage people to get in the water, not so much to swim with the manatees, but learn about you know the aquatic ecosystems overall. I, I'm eager to ask you about how the Save the Manatee Club got off the ground and how you took that challenge and charge to go do something about it and um, and acted on it because it's it's an, it's an amazing story from what Jen and I have read. But before that, I want to go back. You mentioned the manatees are being hunted. So can you sort of give us a, a broad scale look at what the manatee population looked like in Florida from say like the 1600s to or what we know at least about it from the 1600s to when you arrived in 1970 and what and what the state of the manatee population was then? So that's a great question. I wish I had a better answer for you about the historical numbers of manatees. There really isn't good hard evidence. We do know that they regularly would be in areas around springs and other habitat in the wintertime because they needed that warmer water to stay warm. And there, there was evidence of you know their bones and remains and and that sort of thing, but there were hard, no hard counts of them. But there was a lot of accounts of manatees being hunted and killed in different places where they were. So a lot of that is extrapolation. But by the time I made it to Florida, we were looking at somewhere between probably 800 and maybe as much as 1,000 manatees in all of the state of Florida and that southeast region of the United States. I will say with a lot of hard work and a lot of effort not to jump the gun, but we worked really hard and, and the population had increased over many decades to a little over 8,000. But now we're in that really, in my opinion, a declining mode and the cumulative effects of so many things that had been going right and going better were are actually being reversed. And so we can talk about that a little bit more. And that's that's really what's behind our current starvation issues. And, and that really is because of men. You know, in terms of those those early success stories, of course, Save the Manatee Club was a, a pivotal part of that. And as Rebecca already alluded to, uh, the club has a really fascinating history that is so interwoven with icons of Florida's culture and politics with no less than Jimmy Buffett and then Governor Bob Graham as central players. Can you tell us a little bit about this story of how the club got started? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I first started in volunteering and then actually found research money. We got a research grant to study the effects of power plants on manatees. We got we worked with other agencies and organizations to raise funds to do the public awareness program. And so that was starting in 76. So that by the time 1981 came around, we had several years of really hard, important, you know, almost which called groundbreaking research and, and expansion of what was known about manatees, but it was far from what was needed to be done. So there was it literally um, Bob Graham with his daughters were, were at a Jimmy Buffett concert and they went backstage to, to meet Jimmy and he wanted, Bob wanted to introduce 
Governor Graham at the time introduced his daughters to Jimmy and they got talking. And one of the things Jimmy said to the governor was, look, I really think it's important that we do more for manatees. And that was really the genesis of Save the Manatee Club. It started as Save the Manatee Committee. And since I had been working on manatee issues for several years and was by that time the Federal Manatee Recovery Coordinator for the Fish and Wildlife Service, it was natural to, uh, I guess in that case, they appointed me as the first scientific advisor to the committee. And the governor appointed several other members, key organizations and, and members, and that was really the basis of it. But it came from a visit at a concert. That's an amazing origin story. The manatees, as, as you referenced, responded very well to the recovery efforts that you and Save the Manatee Club and, and, and others led starting in the 1980s and the, I, I suppose in the 70s as well. And the population grew to over 10,000. What were the key actions that were taken during that time, in your view, that allowed this recovery? And then, then we're eager to ask you too after that about what's happened since then and how the threats facing manatees have evolved. Well, I would put the probably the highest number that we've seen is somewhere around 8,500 manatees. And okay. some would speculate a high range could be 10,000. But in any event, over those decades, we saw a very significant increase in the population. And you can look at it and attribute to directly to those programs that were implemented. So in, in 1978, for example, we passed in Florida the Manatee Sanctuary Act. And so for the first time, we identified those most important warm water habitats and those most important places for manatees and put in protections in those areas, even though they were relatively small in in terms of the size, they, they protected manatees when they were most vulnerable and aggregating in the largest numbers. And that was the first key step in that. From there, through both the support with Save the Manatee Club and Jimmy Buffett actually going out doing concerts and raising money for the signs to be posted on the waterway so people could be aware where, where these were. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife St- Service stepping up its research, the, the, the implementation of the Manatee Recovery Team, development of the Manatee Recovery Plan. And then that went on. We made a, also a huge advancement in 1989 where under the current governor at the time, we implemented what were called manatee protection plans in 13 of the most critical counties for manatees in Florida. And those were comprehensive plans that dealt with everything from the speed zones and protecting manatees from high-speed boating, uh, increasing the, the number of manatees that would be, uh, in terms of the research, the tagging them with telemetry equipment, following them. So there was a a large complement of both research and protection being done simultaneously. And we were integrating that with growth management in Florida. We were holding accountable those developers to, to develop in a way that was more sustainable and would be lasting. And so this sort of all the things were working together and it was all center and focused within the Manatee Recovery Team and, and that plan. I will say today, about a decade ago, that team was disbanded and uh, a lot of that cohesiveness had gone away and it sort of helped lead to the problems we're facing today. So in terms of you mentioned, uh, you know, early on, the, the threats were somewhat different with the boat strikes. And there was this mass effort around regulating development and, and pollution. And obviously, as we've seen with the most recent mass die offs, that 
uh, landscape has very much changed. Can you talk a little bit about what threats are facing manatees and, and what their outlook looks like? Sure. So maybe we'll we'll start with the one that's most recent and one that we hope we we can fix and we won't ever have it again. And that's this mass starvation on the east coast of Florida. I'll frame it by saying that if you look back to just 2010, there were about 77,000 acres of seagrass in the Indian River Lagoon. And that's on the east coast of Florida. It's about 150 miles, a little more than that long. And it was just wonderful habitat for manatees. And it was part of their natural range. They're, they were there pretty much year round, even though they might select different places of it. But starting as soon as 2011, there was the first major algal bloom, a super bloom. And that had been building because too much nitrogen, phosphorus was making its way both through the groundwater and through the runoff and into that system. For a while, the seagrass communities could absorb that and, and it wasn't, hadn't led yet to those massive algal blooms that shade out the light and literally kill the seagrass. And now I'll bring you up to today. So today we've lost about 90 some percent biomass, even though there's still maybe 40 some percent of the area that has some seagrass remaining and it can be the reserve for recovery. But at the same time, our, our laws established by both the state of Florida and the Environmental Protection Agency are too weak in order to prevent that sort of continued inputs from those nutrients. And I'm getting ahead of myself maybe a little bit. One of the things we're doing today is that we've actually ended up having to file suit together with some other environmental organizations against EPA because they're not willing to raise those standards to a level that would be able to successfully prevent future algal blooms. It's a heartbreaking story. And I'm sure many people listening have probably seen the seen the headlines of, you know, mass feeding attempts and, you know, heartbreaking toll that this algal bloom that then blocks the sunlight has had on these creatures. And it also seems like it's highlighted too the value of seagrass as a habitat. Seagrass is one of those ecosystems that's long been taken for granted and, you know, somewhat overlooked and yet is so essential. Yeah. One, one of the things I really want people to understand is that manatees co-evolved with these seagrass you know, meadows and these ecosystems. And when manatees are allowed to range freely and graze where they want to graze, when they want to graze, over millions of years, essentially, they literally co-evolved together. And when that happened that way, the manatee grazing actually makes the seagrass more productive. It, it can, they can consume even some of the older leaves and with the epiphytic growth, they can create a little bit of more diversity within it. And, and the other thing to point out is these seagrass communities and meadows are also the nursery grounds for the larval f- fishes and, and where the, the young fish have to have. And there's just when you have that broad biodiversity there, everything's healthier. And so one of the things I undertook as an, an aquatic biologist and someone who cared about manatees was it was key to me to be able to protect manatees. We had to protect those aquatic ecosystems, including the seagrass beds. And vice versa, if we were able to protect manatees, since they're essential for the manatees, we would protect those, you know, seagrass communities as well. But it was it was a real fight going through all the different years and decades. And sometimes we were quite good at ensuring that development and growth in Florida was sustainable. Other times it, it wasn't. And 
The problem is that over the last couple of decades, it's been getting much worse. We've had a lot more development in Florida that's unsustainable. And I like to equate it to as you go along and you keep doing things that aren't sustainable, it's like if from an economic standpoint, you're mortgaging your future. And if you keep mortgaging that future, you're going to certain at some point in time, you're going to have to pay off that mortgage or what's going to happen. In this case, Mother Nature's foreclosing because the state of Florida has not been responsible in terms of how it's grown and developed. And so these really that day of reckoning is coming for it and is here on the east coast of Florida. But but fortunately, it's preventable in many other habitats in Florida if we can use this as a, a life lesson. It's a really apt metaphor and speaks to the, the real tragedy of this. You know, there's this sort of dual tension in Florida. Uh, I, I grew up in, in Tallahassee between sort of this um, appetite for rampant development, but also this deep-seated love and appreciation of the really unique wild places within the state. Um, and it's it's been very tragic to see the former take precedent over the latter in, in recent years. Um, with the dissolution of the committee and the really challenging political dynamics in recent years, how has has that impacted the club's approach to this? How are you adapting? Has it been more sort of on the ground actions? Uh, I know that the, for example, the lettuce feeding was a lot more sort of, you know, publicly funded, for example. Well, that's, that's an interesting one. I think what we have had to do over the time, we went through those periods where Save the Nancy Club was so critical to getting people turned out to public hearings, for example. There, you might have had public hearings in the past where we had to really, there was kind of what you'd call almost a knockdown, drag out fight. There would be thousands of people at, at coming to a public hearing to to establish new protections for manatees. And the, wow. the there was... There was animosity sown on purpose between boaters and protecting the environment when the reality was most of those boaters cared about the environment, but they were being told these things that just literally weren't true. And so after several years of this going on, the new protections making it in because there was very strong public support for it, the boaters themselves began to see that, you know, these protections for amenities really aren't so bad. They're not that disruptive to what we want to do. And in fact, as a fisherman, I can probably catch bigger fish and healthier fish in a manatee protected area than outside of one. So over the last, when the government has been rolling back the, the protections for water quality and giving more uh, freedom to develop unsustainably, I think the people of Florida and including the boaters of Florida have recognized the importance of protecting the environment and those resources. And they're seeing the consequences of not holding that development account for growing sustainably. So we're we're kind of in a different mode right now. So even, even the legislature, thankfully this year, we were successful in working with many partners. Things got so bad, they actually ended up appropriating over $30 million in Florida to help with these problems and protection and recovery of the seagrass systems and protection of our springs. So it's coming, you know, much later than than we had hoped it would, but there has been kind of a wake up with how bad this has gotten. Now we need to translate that into both a recovery effort and program, but also preventing this from happening in other communities. 
probably many people saw the headlines about over a thousand manatees dying in 2021 and hundreds dying this year already as well. But then sometimes, you know, what the tragic cost of that for the individual creatures is lost in those numbers. I'm wondering if you could explain, you know, what it looks like for an individual manatee to die from starvation in this way and what the attempts to both save those individuals look like on the ground and also what, how successful and what the feeding effort was that you and your colleagues undertook. Yeah, this is, this is, you know, it's terrible to see a manatee that's been cut up by a boat and it's gruesome and so forth. But honestly, this was even more excruciating because you know that this happened over months and months of time. You see these nice, round, robust, you know, animals that, that are, that, are so docile, so peaceful. And now you're seeing their ribs. They're just, you can see every rib. You can see the, their skull outline in them. And, and you know, and those, the mothers that were nursing their young, they would just give every bit of their, their, their life force to trying to keep that calf alive. And, and, and of course, hundreds and hundreds didn't make it. And, and we were, I don't want to, I don't want to go away from it, but I do want people to know, we were working with other partners to rescue as many as possible. And we rescued, you know, over 149 manatees and were taken in and they're cared for. But let me go back to the to sort of the misery side. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when they would, you know, die and, and necropsies were performed, it was even it was even worse than you can imagine. The, the organs and, and the internal um, condition of, of the manatee, you know, was was just uh, it was like they dissolved from the inside oh, uh, and you know they had to be suffering throughout all that so we were I don't want to spend a lot more time with it but it it was some of the worst things I've ever experienced in terms especially with a career that I've had where, where so a lot of it really has been successful and we were able to do a lot and so we put a lot of effort into the rescuing and, and the rehabilitation and working with many of the partners, including the zoos and aquariums. It's part of the Manatee Rescue and Rehabilitation Partnership. We're a founding member. We're also the fiduciary sponsor of it. But I, I if I can't get anything across today, I want to say, yeah, I've been doing this, but it's, I've only been successful because I've been able to work with so many other really great people and caring people along the way. And, and more recently, I... I give credit to boaters because there are many manatees alive today that wouldn't be alive had they not reported those sick and injured manatees so that they could be rescued and brought in and taken care of. The the numbers speak for themselves, but hearing this on the individual level is just heartbreaking. What did those recovery efforts look like? You you mentioned you were able to save a couple of hundred. Um, Where did those manatees go and, and how did you go about rescuing them? Right. So it's, it's a large coordinated network. The, the Fish and Wildlife Commission, the state organization, wildlife agency, working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and with zoos and aquariums. And the majority actually went to SeaWorld of Florida in Orlando. We have Zoo Tampa, we have Jacksonville Zoo, Clearwater Marine Aquarium, Bradenton uh, Bishop uh, Museum, I'm sure I'm going to leave somebody out. Oh, Homosassa. I mean, we, and there are many, many partners in that. And so 
and they receive really important care there. Some have to be, the, there were a number of calves that were rescued because their mothers had passed on. Uh, they had to be bottle fed and, and taken care of. We're at this long enough that many of those have already been returned to the wild and were successfully rehabilitated. Others have taken much longer uh, to, to do that. We fortunately, with the additional, some of the different appropriations this year, we're able to increase the capacity to be able to take in more manatees and care for those. But again, that's something we're committed and dedicated to, but it's something we're working as hard as we can to put that part out of business because we won't need to do it. This year, we're at about, I think, 90 some manatees that are in captivity and being rehabilitated presently. Uh, and again, working to get those healthy and return to the wild. But we, many of the young younger calves that were rescued from the IRL actually are being not returned there because the the habitat situation is not recovered enough and we don't think they would have done well. The younger ones were actually releasing at Blue Spring State Park, which is in uh, central Florida, and that gives them an opportunity to adapt to that new habitat. And, and the majority of those manatees being returned are fitted with transmitters and tracked to make sure their body condition and health is followed up on to make sure they've had a successful return to the wild. And if, if they haven't, then they may have to be brought back in and given that second chance again. What I'll also talk about is the those living manatees that remain in that system. Uh, and the aerial surveys we've, we're supporting along with the state of Florida and with U.S. Geological Survey, there's still more than a thousand manatees in that region even this summer. One of the things I want to point out is that the number of calves that are being seen, we're seeing a fraction of a percent when we should be seeing six to eight percent of the manatees we see in aerial surveys should be the calves and we're not seeing that. So not only have we had all the mortality that's been documented, but the recruitment and new new, you know, calves being born is down tremendously and it's it's almost near zero for that East Coast. And while that eleven hundred was about twelve percent of the statewide population, it was over twenty percent of the East Coast population. So that East Coast habitat in those areas have been dramatically reduced, that population, and we're going to see the consequence of that for many years to come, even as we're working really hard to do restoration of the habitat. But that's going to be a long, involved process. What does the restoration of the habitat look like, both in terms of what's need, what needs to be done and to limit the pollution and limit development and limit the drivers of this loss, and then also what does it mean to restore seagrass meadows that have been destroyed? And, and how long of a process is that? And what sort of resources and, and work is needed to, to do that successfully? Right. So first and foremost, you want to work on the water quality itself and get those mm -hmm. nitrogen levels, phosphorus levels down to a, a level that it doesn't promote these large algal blooms. Because when those planktonic algae reproduce by the billions and trillions and shade out you know, literally shade out, there's not enough light for the seagrass to grow. So if even if you replanted seagrass, it's not going to grow. So that's the first and foremost. And that comes from hundreds of thousands of septic tanks that are leaching in through the groundwater. It comes from less than properly treated sewage wastewater. 
It comes from exceptions that allow them to, to dump that untreated sewage when there's too much rain. It comes from too much agricultural runoff making its way into these waterways, into the estuaries. And it comes from the hundreds of thousands of backyards if people are fertilizing and, and either over fertilizing, fertilizing at the wrong time. So we're working on everything from fertilizer campaigns and trying to connect people to understand in their own backyard, they can save a manatee or cause more harm to them just by applying fertilizers at the wrong time, the wrong situation. We're working with the agricultural side of it to help control the runoff that makes its way into the systems. We're working on a state level to help them find the funds to, to get people off of these septic systems and on to advanced wastewater treatment. But that's, again, decades of work. We're working with Congress to look at what's more basic for infrastructure in Florida than what we do with our human waste. So we think that needs to be a big part of what's continuing to be funded on a federal level. The National Estuary Program for the IRL has identified about $5.6 billion worth of need and right now, there's probably, if you took everything together, you might be making 50 or $60 million worth of change in a year. And so just that alone shows us how far behind. So that, that's going to have to be ramped up. But the good part is many of those partners are working together. There's more coordination. There's a lot more attention to the issue today. And I'm somewhat optimistic, although we're a long ways from finishing or getting where we need to go. And that's why we also sued the Environmental Protection Agency, because they refused to reinitiate formal Section 7 consultation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, even though the Fish and Wildlife Service requested that they do that. And you, you may ask, well, why are you suing them because they didn't you know, reinitiate consultation? We're saying that the loss of such great amounts of critical habitat for the manatees has resulted in the direct take or loss of these hundreds and hundreds of manatees. And at core, the root problem of that, pun intended, is that we're losing the seagrass and that that seagrass is being lost because the water quality is too polluted with the nitrogen, phosphorus, those things that the EPA has direct responsibility for under the Clean Water Act. They've delegated that responsibility to the state of Florida, DEP. DEP is not achieving those standards even that are deficient, and we believe the standards actually need to be improved. So that's a long answer to the first part. The second part on recovery, if you have water quality, can be everything from literally zoos, aquariums, uh, marine organizations, Save the Manatee Club, getting out there and, and working with other partners to literally replant seagrass in areas that the water quality could sustain that. That's happening already in places around the inlets and areas where there's more flushing and, and some of the pollutants aren't as strong. There's, if you get the overall loading down and you don't have algal blooms coming in in these massive amounts, then the system itself can begin to self-heal if you're not continuing that pollution. And then the natural sort of regeneration process can come back. You only need sparse seagrasses in an area and with the white right water quality conditions, and then they can vegetatively reproduce. And then there's some species that can reproduce through seeding. Uh, maybe I'll stop there, and but there's there's more to it. But but again, the partnerships, the local governments coming together, doing their part to stop the pollution, but also aiding in the recovery and and uh, reestablishment of seagrasses too. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned the role of the federal government in all this, and uh, specifically the role of the EPA. But of course, there's multiple federal government bodies involved. And just a few weeks ago, there was a legal agreement between Save the Manatee Club, Defenders of Wildlife, and the Center for Biological Diversity, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that committed the service to revising critical habitat designations by 2024, something that they had previously refuse to do. So first of all, congratulations on on that development. And can you talk about the significance of that agreement and what needs to happen now? Yes, absolutely. We started on that back in 2008. Sadly, we did get to the point where they've agreed now they're going to be legally bound to do it. Sadly, that's part of that neglect that happened over that last decade when we had gone from one of the, the best manatee recovery programs or even any endangered species recovery program to, to one that was being neglected. Now we're back on course. We, you know, we kind of had to go through the I told you so process because these were not surprises. We'd been warning that these things were going to happen and likely to happen. But now let me focus on the positive side. We're in agreement. And so we're going to be working with them to better define the critical habitat exactly, not just where geographically it's critical, but what specifically within those geographic areas are critical to manatees and their survival. So that will, of course, include seagrasses and and those forage resources, but it's much broader than that. You're you're talking about all the different springs and the warm water uh, areas that manatees depend on in the wintertime as well. For example, you know, climate change is here. It's coming, you know, whether we like it or not. About 60% of manatees are still dependent on the artificial warm water from power plant discharges that are used to cool the steam generators back in order to recirculate that water. We've been trying to work on that problem and wean manatees off of that for more than two decades, but it's been something that's been neglected. We firmly believe that we should be out of the fossil fuel you know, generating business. Uh, Florida Power and Light even just recently announced a, a, a goal that they're going to be trying to be free of fossil fuels within the next, I think, two decades. Uh, But an awful lot of work has to be done there. We can't just turn those off. We can't just eliminate them. We've got to provide a transitional process for manatees to be able to have passive warm water areas and places where they can make it through the colder winters. But at the same token, we need to understand that those fossil fuel generating facilities need to go if we're going to save the earth overall. That's just such a such an interesting example. And, and you know, of course, of course, so important to ensure that when we shut these plants down, we don't lose the manatees in the process. Yes. And, and another thing that can be helpful is I like to make an analogy. When we knew we were going to be faced with, you know, the oil drilling and pumping and, and you know, shipping and and all that and, and failures like with BP and so forth, they created a trust fund nationally and they took some money from each of the barrel of oil that was uh, you know, being involved with that. We've been talking about for more than two decades the need to do that with the electric utilities and take a few cents from every kilowatt generated, put it into a trust fund so that money will be there to make help make this transition you know, a, a safer one for manatees. And we're hoping some of this will bring more attention to that. We're, we're pushing that. Again, there's going to be a major uh, workshop event late this fall that's finally going to get us back on track with dealing with some of these warm water habitat issues. But 
So that's just another element of it. So in manatees, then if you look at the west coast of Florida, we've had years where 300 manatees were killed by red tide. Well, red tide is is another, it's a dinoflagellate, it's a planktonic, you know, species that that can bloom in, in such large numbers and they produce what's called, you know, a brevitoxin. It's a type of neurotoxin. And so when it's concentrated, it's a naturally occurring organism, but when it gets close to our in, inshore habitats, it can be fueled and become more persistent and prolific because of our localized pollution. So that's another major factor for manatees. And then just the habitat modifications and destruction, uh, which affects so many different things and pumping from the aquifer. If we don't control that, our natural springs, which are the only long lasting survival for winter habitat is probably gonna be our natural springs and those passive deeper water areas that hold temperatures longer. Uh, so there's there's just so many different threats and risks, and those in terms of a critical nature to go back to the to the answer are going to be better identified, and therefore with that identification there should be better protection, and there should be stronger requirements and restrictions for future development. Speaking of the the habitat alteration piece and some of these legacy projects, uh, your organization has been working on restoring the Great Florida Riverway. Can you talk about what this riverway is, its importance, and your work to go about restoring it? Yes. So the Oklawaha River itself, which is a key component of that, was essentially bisected and dammed off it normally would have flown freely through the St. John's River system, which is, of course, Florida's largest and most, I guess, uh, important river. It flows north. It, 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 uh, its origins are in central Florida, mid-range, and then flows all the way to Jacksonville. This is a major, this was a very significant tributary. It was part of a failed uh, project called the Cross Florida Barge Canal. It was a boondoggle from the beginning where they wanted to, you know, ship through barges and they cut through the aquifer. They dammed the Oklawaha River and with Lacucci River and other river systems. It was deauthorized. I, I may not have the date exactly, but, but by the, by the 70s, it was, it was dead. And, but now here we are, 2022. We still have the Rodman Dam in place. It's flooded and killed, you know, thousands of cypress trees. It's changed that ecosystem dramatically. We're getting really close, I think, to also improving the public support for this to, to remove portions of the dam, which would allow this system to return to its uh, original waterway. And then that would reconnect it directly with the St. John's River. And it could become, you know, a living, breathing part of that larger ecosystem. And what's important to manatees in it, so in addition, is that the Silver River runs into the Oklawaha River. And the Silver River is fed by Silver Springs, a very large magnitude spring. And that's going to be a very critically important future winter habitat for manatees. And one of the big reasons that it's also important to restore the Oklawaha River. And we believe it will also increase the fisheries uh, productivity and species composition and, and return it to what it was before that Cross Florida Biology Canal project went forward and dammed and cut through the aquifer and so forth. As you and Save the Manatees are taking on all of these 
you know, ambitious and, you know, so worthwhile efforts to try to protect, protect the ecosystem for not just manatees, but really for everything that depends on it, including people, since obviously manatees aren't the only ones who are, who are impacted by all of these issues like water quality. Who are the main opponents that you face in trying to get this done? Is it the agriculture lobby and developers or a combination of those? Or where are the barriers to seeing this through? So let me start by today more so than before. Mm-hmm. So today, in, in terms of the, the Aklawaha, there's a group called Save Rodman. And they're predominantly bass fishermen. There's nothing wrong with bass fishermen. Uh, uh, but in this case, they're fighting to protect what they have because they, they like to be able to catch large bass in this impounded water body that is really not in good health. And in fact, you catch your larger bass in waterways that are, you know, farther along in terms of the poor condition and reality. That's just part of the science behind it. But but they like what they have and they want to keep it. I think more and more, though, there are more enlightened fishermen and those recreational users that understand that restoring this, which would, yes, you'd lose some bass fishing areas, but they would be replaced by other species that could actually be fished. And you may again have striped bass come back into that system. Uh, there, there are a number of other species that, that people could have a good time doing it. You could have recreation from paddlecraft and, and other, you know, less disruptive activities. But they're very set on because this has been there for over 50 years and they would like to keep it. So you can understand them fighting it, but we hope that by, again, educating behind the science of the water quality, the need for future protections and restoration, that this will be won over. And I think we're only we're only a year probably or so from making this a reality. I think we're getting quite close and it, it makes sense from sort of every level. There have been recent public opinion surveys that were scientifically controlled and documented that are showing much broader support for it now. And we we hope that, you know, again, these are not bad folks that want to keep what they had, but we hope that the the science and the, and the betterment, if you will, for all concerned will weigh out and win over. One of the things to, to understand why it's harder today to protect things in a better way than it was even before in Florida is that a number of the tools that we had, we had what a depart, whole department called the Department of Community Affairs. And it was its charge was principally to be able to administer Florida's Growth Management Act. And that Growth Management Act required local governments to develop comprehensive management plans that dictated what kind of growth would take place, where it would take place, under what circumstances. And you were supposed to look at all these different things in relationship to different developments. And one of the tools within that were called developments. You would have a development of regional impact if you had such a large development that it was not only going to have an impact in that very small local area, but it regionally could impact more. It provided a process to get all the different the developer and the different agencies together, and they would work on a more comprehensive solution to try to permit what was requested, but in a way that it was sustainable. Well, both the department is gone. Therefore, the Department of Development Regional Impacts Review is gone. And so what you end up having is that and the rules in protecting these various habitats by the state of Florida have been weakened. The number of staffing from the agencies have been reduced. 
And the legislature itself has been working to expedite permitting. And so this has all sort of led to this, you know, worsening situation. And that analogy I gave again, where in some places we're literally, you know, have mortgaged so much of our future, it's, it's being foreclosed in a figurative standpoint by Mother Nature. Well, that's where the key needs to come in in terms of the federal government. It probably is time for them. They had literally delegated the Clean Water Act responsibilities to the state of Florida. We believe they've either got to make Florida accountable under the Clean Water Act, which is federal legislation, or they need to take back the delegation and do it themselves. Because I think Florida has proven that it's not capable to this point of doing it. We hope that they would. We hope that they will. Our current governor is recognizing the importance of water, clean water and water quality. But now he's going to be, have to be you know, faced with making tough decisions about doing enough that we can reverse this trend we're in. And we're hopeful that he will do that. And we're very grateful for the support he gave this year for the funding for the manatee recovery work and the seagrass work. There's establishment of an eligible task force, but unfortunately, even many of those recommendations that have come from that are not being implemented. So we've really got to, to wake up and understand that things will get worse if we don't take pretty radical actions to turn it around. It's an absolutely infuriating uh, situation just to hear about those rollbacks and the very predictable outcomes that have come as a result. And you know what, what author Jeff Vandermeer has recently called the accelerating race to destroy Florida's wilderness. One of the underlying themes to so many of the stories you've told is just the profound love the public uh, and manatee advocates have for the species. It's incredibly touching to read about so many of the, the Save the Manatee Club staff and Floridians more broadly who have these really personal relationships with individual manatees, some even giving them names um, and recognizing them somewhat tragically uh, in many cases by their their scars even even after years of last seeing them they will they will recognize these individuals what is it about manatees that inspires these feelings of connectedness well for me and i think others too it even though it's a large marine mammal and they're strong but they're they literally are defenseless and besides that they're not capable of being aggressive and so they're that they're that wonderful animal that just wants to go along and get along with everybody. And even even when I did more work with manatees and alligators, and you have these 12 plus foot alligators and a 10 or 11 foot manatee, the alligator just gives away. Get out, get out of the way of the manatee. It's not, it's not threatening the alligator. It's just being there. And by being there, you know, the, the alligator knows, well, this is not a threat to me, but the same token, you know, I, I probably should just go ahead and let him have his way. Uh, and it, they are lovable in that sense. Uh, they, again, I go back to they also, they're, they're, they're like the gardeners of the ecosystem and they're the things that, they do help make the ecosystem better. And if we can make the ecosystem better, it'll be better for them. But I think it's the, the endearing part is that not, it's just not in their nature to be aggressive. And the problems they have are all problems really that man has caused. And if we can fix those problems, we fix it for man too. And, and for me, that I know that that gentleness, and then if you take a little time and just spent, see the way that 
one manatee can tenderly caress another one and just the slightest little touch and and you know you can just see how well they're communicating together uh, and then they will play and, and all those things too but some people take the swimming with too far they think that when they're swimming with them at in Crystal River where it's you know been done for so long there are a number of manatees that sort of put up with it although most manatees don't want to be around people and they'll they'll flee from them there are quite a few there that will and they like to the people like to rub their belly or scratch under their you know, flipper or whatever. And when the manatee rolls over, it's really not rolling over to get more of a belly rub. It's rolling over to tell you, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm turning away from you, but then they do it more. And anyway, I'm getting a little, but you, you can love them too much. And that had become a problem where people were feeding them on their own. And that can disrupt their normal behavior. Mm. Well, here we are, fast forward, though, to this state of starvation. And so it was necessary to work with the Fish and Wildlife Service, Fish and Wildlife Commission to do this supplemental feeding this last winter probably will be needed to be done again. But as soon as we can get out of that, we want to, because it's not the way that we want to see going in the future. We want to see it restored. But the situation has gotten so bad and the repercussions from the starvation were so serious, it really had to be done. And I think we can learn from what went on last winter to improve this coming winter situation. And there is a flurry of other things being done to help you know, work on making the ecosystem better, replanting in the tributaries and freshwater vegetation. Um, you know, maybe I'll stop there, but but I'm both both very concerned and I'm also optimistic at the same time. One more question on the nature of the manatees themselves. It, it was very interesting in preparing for this podcast. Jen and I have prepared for many podcasts on other creatures, but it was surprisingly hard other than Save the Manatees website and some other terrific resources like that compared to some other species to find a lot of information online or a lot of book, you know, modern books about about manatees compared to, say, their ancestors, the elephants. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about why you think there might be that differential and how much research has been done on these creatures and also what what's known about what their social and cognitive lives are like. Yeah, you know, it may be that we just all have to work harder at getting what has been done out to folks that are when they're looking for it, that they can find it. Because there's an awful lot of other research that has been done. Mm-hmm. Manatees are very well studied. And mm-hmm. we even experiments that went that go back to the, how well they can hear uh, and the subtleties of that. And it's it you would be fascinated just to understand how they had to be trained in order to tell the researchers their answers. So for example, a manatee was trained to go to a certain place in a pool and wait there. And then they heard a tone. And then they heard, did they hear the tone on the right? Or did they hear the tone on the left? Then they have to go to another station within the, the experiment, the area of the experiments. And they have to touch a paddle that's marked this way or a paddle that's marked that way. Or they don't do something or do something. So you can... I like to equate it to something similar to how you teach a draw a dog tricks. If you want a dog to go ahead and bring you a drink out of the refrigerator, go to the refrigerator, open it up, get you the drink and bring it. Those are the kinds of things manatees had to be trained to do in order to tell us how well they could hear, for example. And that maybe that's not not as obvious as to what it had to go through because there were 
there were also those negative folks that from the boating community that were saying manatees were dumb and they didn't couldn't get out of the way and they couldn't hear and so forth. But manatees can actually localize where the sound's coming from underwater. And they can they can at different frequencies, they hear better at higher frequencies than lower frequencies. I'm just using that as an example. And then there's kind of neat things about manatees. Manatees' teeth, for example, they produce new teeth in the back. The old ones fall out in the front. Why does that happen? It's because they their diet, they chew sand and other things that grind down their teeth. And if they didn't have these sort of marching molars, they wouldn't survive. It'd be, you know, like an old person who lost their teeth and they have to starve to death. But they have adapted to a system where their teeth are literally replaced from the back and, and move forward as, as they grind down. I'm just kind of putting out a, a few different things. And they're they're not slow and they're not dumb. We, and we've We've had hundreds of manatees radio tagged and followed in the telemetry and following them for many different years to understand their nature and what they do. The you know anatomical research on them is quite strong. One of our board members is one of the world's authorities on manatee brains, and you know he could do a whole show on <laughs> on manatee brains and their sensitivity of other hairs on their body and and different things like that. So there's an awful lot more known about them probably than is readily out there. And so I'm, I'm taking from your question, maybe we need, need to do a better job of, you know, even getting more of that more available. Or Jen and I need to do a better job of searching for it too. But I certainly <laughs> no. think I completely, I completely agree with you that the manatees, they're just such, I, I learned so much be it about the whisker like hairs all over their body or the examples that you just said in preparing for this that I had no idea prior to the podcast. So I, I certainly think that be it through popular media books or documentaries or whatever else, I hope um, I hope the word does keep getting out because the creatures certainly deserve it. And we're trying to do more shorts and so forth. And hopefully we're getting better as, as technology gets a little more user-friendly and so forth. I actually did my first underwater documentary on manatees and, and, and published it in 1981, same year Save the Manatee Club was adopted. Yeah. And I got Leonard Nimoy to do the narration Principally because I was so persistent, I wouldn't leave him alone. <laughs> it took me, you know, over a year to get him to finally agree to do that. And I went around begging from Florida Power and Light, from the Department of Natural Resources, and anybody I could to get enough money to go out and, and you know, put that together. But at those days, it was very different. I, I filmed that on a very large underwater camera that was, you know, it bigger than, wider than, I am. We had to use color negative film. You might have a hundred feet of that and you had to get every shot just exactly what you wanted when you could get it because it's not like video today. I mean, you, things that we can record today so simply with, mm -hmm. you know, video cameras and so forth. And we do have underwater cameras and above water cameras. And so I'm, I'm delighted by how the technology has changed and given us more freedom. But I'm also reminded what you know, what an arduous process it was back in the day to to get quality information and get it out there. But maybe that's part of the answer, too, to the question you asked me earlier. What did we do to to help increase public awareness and so forth? And and just by getting Leonard Nimoy to narrate that at a time when he was very popular with the series that he was in, both in Star Trek and, and uh, I can't remember the other Animal Planet. It was for Animal Planet, but the other animal show that was on uh, that helped 
a lot of people learn about manatees back then, which I think was, you know, setting the stage and laying the foundation for what we had to do to win those really knockdown drag out battles. Because all of those speed zones mm-hmm. and those protections didn't come because we had a willing, you know, there were many people trying to stop that. And we had to overcome it to the point today, though, I think manatee protection is much more widely adopted and, and accepted. And a lot of the myths and the, the misunderstandings have been corrected and people can see that the protections we wanted to do aren't that onerous. And actually, they can be good for them, too. Are there ways that people listening can help the manatees, including people who aren't necessarily in Florida, to try to help you and save the manatees achieve your, your priorities and goals? Well, absolutely. And that's what we're all about because we are a membership based organization and supported. We don't, we don't take government money and, and, and so forth. And we, we, well, we'll accept some grants and so forth. We're really dependent on people coming, but more important than the donations and say adopting a manatee and helping us do that is to join our action alert. Uh, process where they sign up for that and then we will contact them and let them know opportunities to write to the president, for example, or to write to their, if they're, they're in Florida, we'll put them in, in with their local government officials and their legislators. If they're outside of Florida, we'll probably be having them connect with the, the senators and the congressional members and so forth and doing that with the various agencies and helping to influence the agencies to take action. So we have a strong grassroots component as well to what we do. And one of the best ways for people to plug into that is, is to join our, our action alert. Uh, network and and we'll reach out to them and and give them opportunities specifically as to what they can do. And we have a volunteer network. So if you're in Florida, we we do work with many different volunteers and we share even some of our volunteer programs with other organizations so that we can make that even more effective. So I think volunteer opportunities, signing up for action alerts, and then, you know, from a financial standpoint, adopting a manatee is probably one of the funnest ways because you can learn about that very specific manatee. It's his life history. You get its bio and so forth. And then by doing that, you're helping all the manatees and you're helping to help protect and restore those aquatic ecosystems. Well, Patrick Rose, thank you so much for all of your truly important work. And, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find more about Patrick Rose and his work. Thanks for listening.